Laurel grew up with octopuses. She's been around him since before she could walk. I didn't have to coach her. She just was able to evoke the octopus because she has seen them over and over and over again. She kind of knew what she was drawing. It was a, a real delight to have that level of familiarity with an animal that really is unfamiliar to many artists. Because octopuses, when they show up in art, they're often very gorgeous. They have these properties that artists love. The flow and the coiling and the curves and all that. But the artist is not necessarily concerned with catching a true-to-life moment or posture or behavior of the octopus. Masters of disguise and misdirection, octopuses have long been one of the most enigmatic animals on the planet. Our understanding of them simultaneously shrouded and illuminated in mythology and legend. In truth, octopuses' lives are complex and often contradictory, notoriously solitary. They also have the potential for complex relationships. Octopuses are also powerful predators. Their deceptively soft and boneless bodies can defeat even the most heavily armored animals in the sea. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders. The book is called Many Things Under a Rock, and the author is David Scheel. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so excited on so many levels. Number one, I grew up on the beach in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, never did see an octopus. It's interesting to hear people from the Northwest talk about growing up and not seeing octopuses on the beach, because I didn't grow up on the ocean. I came up to Alaska started talking to people and I got interested in octopuses and I ended up doing a lot of work walking beaches and finding octopuses. And so I became very curious why we found them on beaches up here in Alaska and people didn't down there. I had a student who even did a project on that. She wanted to travel for her senior project. So we suggested she walk beaches from Mexico up to Canada, look for octopuses. That was kind of fun. But it seems like the beaches just are a little bit different down there and maybe just a little less suitable for octopus habitat. It's not that they're never there, but they're much less commonly there. And when you say you find them on beaches, do you mean like in the water on the beach or they actually come up onto the shore? It's usually at low tide. When they arrive, they were underwater. And they when they depart, they'll be underwater again. If you walk the beaches at very low tides and know what you're looking for, you can find them. But of course, they can camouflage. So maybe they were there. We just, I wasn't looking. Well, they like to hide under the rocks. They dig little dens. And so they're off in their dens, in their houses under the rocks. What got you interested in studying octopuses? I've always been interested in octopuses. I, I read about them in Jacques Cousteau's book, The Soft Intelligence, when I was a kid. And I had seen Jacques Cousteau on television. And I'd always kind of wanted to be one of those biologists who got to spend time chasing the animals. It was just exciting to have an opportunity to get started and try and do octopus work. This is such a beautiful book. And when I look at the layout, it looks like you're taking us on a journey. I tried to write about it that way, sort of to capture that sense when I first encountered octopuses of how how weird it all was. I mean, I had moved from essentially from Houston, Texas to Cordova, Alaska, in Houston, of course, is a great big city on a very, very flat terrain, sort of right near the sea, but really nowhere near the sea, but not in the places where I lived. Cordova is a little tiny town perched between the mountains and the sea. I worked on the harbor. I looked out my window and saw killer whales swimming by. Just a huge contrast to make that shift. I'd never seen an, an octopus before, other than maybe in an aquarium briefly. I was trying to figure out 
what was known about them and, and what could be known about them. So I, I really didn't know very much at all uh, when I entered that. And that's why I wanted to bring the reader in as someone who maybe just had never really thought much about octopuses before kind of relationship with octopuses and maybe never even spent time in the ocean. And that's where I started. So that's where I opened the book and then tried to carry it forward from there to the point where the octopuses become these very intriguing animals. How many species or types are there where you live? There there are about maybe eight in the waters of Alaska, but Everybody only talks about one, the giant Pacific octopus. And that's the one that's common here. And it is a very large animal. People can harvest it for food. And when you see it, you, it's big enough to interact with. But in fact, one of the things that happened over the course of my career is, is kind of stumbled upon another species of octopus that's apparently been here all along, but no one really noticed it. And it's quite large as well. Superficially, it looks very similar. You can imagine hauling some of this other species up on a in a shrimp pot on the deck of a boat and and not know that it's different. But if you look at it closely or you watch it underwater, it's very different. Wow, that's amazing. It seems like there's quite a variety. Some are really small, and then of course the one you mentioned that's so big. Do they have similarities, even though they're so different in their sizes? Yeah, there's something very similar across octopus species in that they all, in a way, they all kind of look the same. And so it's very easy to talk about octopuses as a group. But worldwide, there's over 300 species, and they range in size from a little tiny thing like the pygmy octopus or something like that that's going to be thimble-sized or a little bit bigger, up to the giant Pacific, the blanket octopus, which are very large animals that can weigh as much as a person. There's a lot of differences within this very similar body type. They all have eight arms. They all have the mantle with the head in between. But then some of them only have one row of suckers down the octopus arms. Some of them have very long, thin arms, and some of them are much more muscular. Some of them seem to do a lot with color. Some of them do less. We're still kind of learning the ways in which the species themselves are different. I understand their arms are not all the same on just on one octopus. Every arm isn't the same. Is that correct? If you think about the front of the octopus, the side where that the eyes face out from, and you were to divide the octopus into its left and right side, they have eight arms. So there's four arms down each side, the front pair, which we label number one, the second pair, the third pair, and the fourth pair. And then they're very similar anatomically. They, they vary for the most part in, in length. So often the second and third pairs are a little bit longer than the first, and they're a little bit longer than the fourth, but it varies by species. And then the, the first pair of arms will often get used for exploration. It took me a long time to realize it, but the giant Pacific octopus is a little odd. When it walks along the bottom, it actually holds its first pair of arms out in front of it quite commonly. And we, we didn't see that in the aquarium because our aquariums aren't quite big enough for them to go roaming like that. So it was really interesting to watch and see it on video and go, oh, I never realized they did that. And then the second pair of arms is often used for grabbing and manipulating. Third pair of arms is often used for walking, but it's also involved in mating. And then the fourth pair of arms for walking and moving. They're all very generalized limbs. They're not as distinctly different as our forearms are from our legs, for example but they still get deployed differently. And they have a reputation, it seems, for being very intelligent. How does that show up? They do have a reputation for being intelligent. And sneaky. Yes. We can see the, what leads to that reputation in their behavior. They have a pretty good memory. 
they learn, they can recognize faces. Octopuses also have kind of large brains for their body size. So if you're interested in anatomy and how many neurons and so on like that, then they show up as a relatively larger brained species. The thing is, large brains and complex behavior like that are kind of rare among the invertebrates. Like they characterize sort of us and dolphins, and we're both mammals. But if you look at all of the invertebrates, that's much less common. And so we're kind of still learning what octopuses can do and where their limits are. We always kind of look for that clever Hans story, that story of sort of this spark of genius. But it's also interesting to think about what an octopus does that's sort of an everyday behavior that's kind of intelligent. And octopuses are always sort of using their judgment. For example, when they catch their food, they, they eat crabs. They prefer the larger species of crabs. And then within the species, they also prefer the larger individuals of crabs. They're doing at least two things just in that simple observation, right? They're able to estimate the size of what they're catching or not catching. And they're also able to pass something up if it's smaller than average because they're going to find something bigger later. To me, that's one of the seeds of this intelligence. Now, you have observed octopus in the tanks as well as in the ocean, right? Yes, that's right. Is there a big difference between how they behave in a tank versus out in the wild? I keep the aquariums mostly on campus. I, I teach at Alaska Pacific University, uh, work with a lot of undergraduates. I keep the aquariums there and it's kind of the, the salty home of the undergraduate students. And so they're always interacting with the octopuses. It's fascinating to look at how the octopuses react to different people and different circumstances. We had a really interesting case once in which we had two octopuses sort of next to each other. One of them in the big tank was, was bigger, three or four times or more the size of the other one. And the other one in the smaller tank was kind of a little guy. And the little guy was very shy. But the big guy, oh, she liked to take the cleaning tools away from the students and squirt them. And actually, she was a lot of fun to interact with, but also, you know, kind of a handful. And then the day came when we transferred. The, the big guy was getting big enough that we wanted to move her out of our systems and, and let her go. And we returned her to the ocean. We brought another one in that was little, about half the size of the one in the small tank. And all of a sudden... The students come to me and they go, the one in the small tank, her name was Dana. Dana's being really feisty. She's like fighting and wrestling and taking our stuff and squirting us. The same behavior that we hadn't seen out of her before, but the big one used to do, the little one was now doing. And I, I started to think, well, I wonder if she just realized when the big octopus left and we put a smaller animal in the tank where the big one was like, oh, Dana is now the big kid on the block. She used to be the little guy, but now she's big, so she can afford to be a little feistier. It was really interesting kind of change in her behavior. Interesting. You said that they'll grab cleaning tools. Do you actually put your hands in the tank? You can with some species, and it's wise not to with other species. There are some species like the blue-lined octopuses and the blue-ringed octopuses that live in Australia and the Indonesia seas, and they're very toxic. Their toxins, if they bite you, can stop your breathing. It's okay. It's only for 20 minutes. 
Uh, and after about 20 minutes, your, your liver will break down the toxin and you'll be able to breathe again. But unless you happen to have artificial respiration around for a while, that can be a bit of a hardship. But the giant Pacific octopus in Alaska, their toxin, most people don't have as strong a reaction to it. It can still be kind of serious if you get a bite, but they're much less likely to bite as well. And because they're a bigger animal, they're strong, but they can't really lift their own body out of the water very nimbly. We've always felt like it was safe to really interact with the the giant Pacifics in the tanks quite a bit. And they they come right up to the surface. They're very eager for it. They like it. We have octopus rubescens that we work with as well. And uh, that's a smaller animal, the red octopus. It's very common in the Washington area. That one is very agile. People are more likely to have a severe reaction to a bite. We don't handle those. We don't let the students directly handle those just because we don't want to risk a bite, but we also don't want a risk someone getting scared and like jerking their hand away and possibly injuring the octopus. So from, from both sides, it's safer not to let them handle, directly handle the animals. When you're scuba diving and you see an octopus, do you try to interact or you do, do you just observe? It depends what I'm doing. If I'm photographing, I try to disturb them as little as possible. I just want to get pictures of their natural behavior. I did a study in Morea where we were trying to encounter octopuses. We were actually on snorkel, not on scuba diving. And we were very curious about uh, sort of differences between the individual octopuses. And so we had this little sort of curiosity test that we gave them where we we kind of approached and looked in and recorded what they did. Did they change color? Did they retreat? Did they come forward? And then we reached out with a pencil and kind of made little scratching noises in front of their den. And did they grab the pencil? Did they take it away from us? Did they run back further into their den? Did they want to play or not? So sometimes we interact a little bit and sometimes we don't. Awesome. Do you have a favorite story you like to tell? Oh, too many. The, the book is uh, The book is full of little stories of one kind or another. Okay, so you're at a party. People find out you're a marine biologist, and they they ask you for a story. Which one? What's your go-to? Stories are their own thing, right? Stories aren't just what happens. Stories are how we create our own worlds. The way we talk about giant octopuses and giant squids really kind of shows how important the stories are to people, uh, because the stories are fun, and they're all often the fun of the stories is more alluring than the truth. What kind of story do you want to tell, right? I was once told a story of a, a large octopus that was hauled onto a fishing boat. And one of the fishermen got into a bit of a tussle trying to handle the octopus on deck. And in the tussle, the octopus stole the man's fishing knife out of the sheath on his belt and then stabbed him with it in the leg. And as the octopus made his escape into the sea, the stabbed man could still see his knife in the clutches of the suckers. So I do take care, try not to get into dangerous situations with octopuses, but that's a lovely story. Cy Montgomery, who wrote a testimonial for this book, she told a story about in the Boston Aquarium about an octopus that would grab things from the yeah, Oh, yeah, they very much like to grab things. I mean, whatever you've got, they're going to take it and try and hold on to it and investigate it for a little bit. Yeah. 
so crazy. Again, the name of the book is Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of Octopuses. This is the author speaking, but I think it's a great read and it's full of exciting sea yarns and awe-inspiring animals. We talk about octopuses nowadays when we want to understand almost anything. If you read about overfishing or aquaculture or environmental issues, you're going to find octopuses. But but octopuses also show up when people are talking about climate change. The battle of the sexes gets drawn into it. Even consciousness and what does it mean to be human? These are kind of the, you know, the huge array of different topics that turn up under the rocks where octopuses can be found. And so I think nowadays, given that octopuses are such a ubiquitous metaphor and they're very popular internet and social media celebrities, maybe we should really know something about what they are actually like. Shouldn't we understand the octopuses themselves? And so that's kind of what the tour of chapters that you talked about really get at each each of the chapters, yes, it carries you along the story, but it also tells you about one or more aspects of the octopus's lives to the best that we can know it right now. They've been kind of a mystery, it seems, until recently when people have been able to kind of research them more. They don't have a very long lifespan, do they? No, no. Many of them live uh, six months to a year. The longest lived ones, well, it, you talked about maybe we didn't know that much about them. Until recently, we would have said the longest lived octopuses are maybe maybe five years. Giant Pacific octopus, which lives in the Pacific Northwest, grows very large, maybe four to five years maximum. But there was some studies being done in, in Monterey Canyon off of uh, California, and they were visiting this site where uh, one of these uh, deep sea octopuses had laid its eggs and was tending its eggs on the rock. It was a place that is frequented by a lot of these octopuses. But but this particular one, they checking to see how it was doing, it was tending the eggs. And generally when the mothers are on their eggs, they will refuse food and they stay and they they sort of clean and, and care for the eggs and tend the eggs until the eggs hatch. And during this period, because the mother isn't feeding, they'll decline in body condition and get gradually worse and worse. Eventually the eggs hatch and the mother, the mother dies at that point. And this is, you know, they're a bit like salmon that way, right? After spawning. So this is absolutely normal octopus uh, behavior. So these guys, this is deep sea. They're in a submersible or an ROV and they come back and they check over the months. They check how this female is doing at this one spot. It's Metamark they know about. And she's there, she's on her eggs, she's there, she's on her eggs. And eventually, after a number of visits, she's gone. The eggs have hatched, there's nothing left but the outer covering of the of a few of the eggs, which is all very normal and expected. But what was interesting is they were able to use the period of time over which they known that this female was tending eggs and use that to extrapolate out what her lifespan was. And she tended eggs over a period of four years. So without eating, gives her a lifespan probably of 10 years. Just that one observation has pretty much doubled what we think an octopus can live to. The colder water species live longer. When I think about what you're saying, they only have eggs one time then. Yeah, yeah. Most species, there are, again, new new discoveries, relatively new. There are a couple of species that will lay eggs over a, a, lo- a more extended time and lay, you know, every few days or weeks. This is another fascinating story. There was a uh, 
an octopus that was described that way and had a whole bunch of other unexpected behaviors amongst octopuses. They denned together and they mated face to face. And there was a fellow, Arata Nietzsche, in the 70s who um, wrote his PhD thesis about this. And he submitted it to a journal. And I haven't seen the comments that he got back or, or the original paper for that matter. But the paper was rejected partially on the grounds that what was being reported was fairly unbelievable. One presumes if the reviewers were doing their job, this is fairly unbelievable, we need a little more evidence. But sometimes reviewers are not that kind and polite or that professional or that collegial. They might have phrased it very poorly. I do not know. Rodonichi ended up in another career, as you might imagine, after getting his work rejected. And the octopus, no one could find it anymore. It vanished. And I heard about it back in like maybe the 90s. And people were saying maybe it had gone extinct because it just was, it was just gone. Sometime in the, around 2010, I think, it showed up again. Uh, somebody had collected some and it showed up on the market and the uh, Steinhardt Aquarium in California obtained some specimens and were able to study them, provide this more evidence and better detail and more photos and verify all of the things that Rodonichi had, had uh, claimed and get in touch with him and actually bring him on board to compl help complete the study. And that was published a few years back. So just fascinating. So that's one of those cases where, yes, most octopuses, like salmon, reproduce once and then die. But there are a couple of, of almost unbelievable exceptions. And then they have so many quadrillion eggs. <laughs> I don't know. They have so many, but not very many make it. Is that right? Yeah. For a lot of species, they'll lay, you know, like... Um, Giant Pacific octopus, which is admittedly a big animal, but they'll lay 80 to 100,000 eggs. If you think about the population as, as being fairly steady over time, and every, if everybody gets to reproduce, then only two of those eggs can survive to reproduction, because otherwise the population would, would be growing. Now, obviously, it fluctuates, and sometimes we do get growing. Sometimes maybe 10 or 20 of those get to adulthoods and lay eggs. But on average, if the populations are roughly stable over, over long periods of time, then on average, two per 100,000 are making it to adulthood. There are two kinds of species, though, within the, the octopuses more broadly. Small egg species, the ones we've just been talking about, lots of eggs. Each egg is very small. When the young hatch, they go up into the plankton. But then there are large egged species you'll see much fewer numbers of eggs. And when those eggs hatch, the babies don't go up into the plankton. They come directly to the bottom, begin living as small octopuses uh, immediately. They have no planktonic stage. Oh, interesting. You also did a PBS special? Yes, I did. PBS Octopus Making Contact in 2018, I think. There was one PBS show, Octopus Making Contact. It was also released by the BBC as the octopus in in my living room, the octopus in my living room. It seemed like the one about the octopus dreaming, you were sort of narrating it as it was changing colors. I had Heidi in my house. I didn't have my bed next to the aquarium. She was down in the living room. So, and Heidi was a day octopus. This is uh, the species octopus cynia. Uh, and they, they live in Hawaii and, and more tropical regions. So I had her in my house, but and she was active during the day for the most part, and then would sleep at night. I was away for some travel during this period, and uh, one of the PBS cameramen came and 
stayed in the house so that he could film, you know, more without people around. He set up the cameras to film at night. And I think he got that clip at night. Now, obviously, the octopus is lit. So there's filming lights going on. But the octopus is sound asleep. And that much is very clear and was non-controversial. There really hadn't been very much science done on octopus sleep. But at that time, there's been a little bit more done since then. But everyone kind of understood that octopuses sleep. But then you had all these body patterns going on. And I was sort of speculating that the body patterns that an octopus displays are very ecologically relevant to what's going on in the moment. If that octopus is out foraging, you're going to see one sequence of body patterns. If they are um, deeply afraid and they're hiding, you're going to see a totally different sequence of body patterns. If they are busy in the midst of a battle with a predator, you're going to see a completely yet another set of body patterns in order. The body patterns that I saw in that, in that sequence reminded me of a foraging sequence. And so I was speculating, well, if she's asleep, but she's going through her foraging body pattern sequence, maybe she's dreaming of catching a crab. And if so, we can really relate what's going on from point to point because we can tell by the body patterns where she is in the sequence. And so I was sort of suggesting that uh, if we want to know more about animal dreaming, octopuses might be interesting to study because if we had a really good record of sleep patterns, and a really good record of the ecologically relevant patterns when they're awake, we might be able to match them up and not only say something about whether they're dreaming, but also about what they're dreaming about. That's fascinating. That was just amazing to watch that. Octopus eat crab. What eats octopus besides humans? Almost everything eats octopuses. They start out quite small, and then as they grow larger, they encounter larger and larger predators. So they get eaten in the plankton, by predatory fish, cod, anything that's a filter feeder, pollock. Once they reach the bottom, they get eaten by herring and salmon and halibut. And as they get bigger, they get eaten by sharks and seals, even dolphins. There's a lot of things. They're very unprotected animal. And so there's a lot of things that can eat them. They have to be so good at camouflage and so good at sort of outwitting their predators. Do you have any big worries for the future of the octopus? Not that are maybe unique to the octopus. Climate change is having its impact. One of the follow-on problems from climate change is, is ocean acidification. If the oceans become acidified enough, even something like an octopus that doesn't have... The first problem is going to be in the animals that put down calcium carbonate skeletons like clams to put down that chalky skeleton. The octopus doesn't have that, but even so, they're going to have problems. There are little hard parts inside the... It's like it's an analog of the octopus's ear, but there are little tiny grains in there that help the octopuses tell up from down. If the oceans acidify rapidly enough to cause the breakdown of the physiology of, of these different species, octopuses are going to be hit by that. And then, of course, everything is suffering right now from overharvesting, so... You want to say any more about that? Octopuses are very promising species in that regard, in the sense that there's a lot more eggs than there are adults. There's a great potential for reproduction. They're very fast growing, very little waste in an octopus, a body that is largely muscle. They also are pretty easily over harvested, and it requires some attention to allowing them time to renew. Some of our the indigenous people have been harvesting octopuses for very, very long periods of time without any obvious negative consequences. 
because they do it in a way that populations aren't high, then they just don't take in. So they're waiting for the octopus to occupy the dens that they know and harvest from. And when we have commercial harvest, the way we do, that follows that kind of procedure of taking breaks and letting things come back, then it seems like it works. It's this notion of, I harvested so many octopuses for so much profit last year, I need to try and do that well or better every year. Then, then we run into challenges. That's for food. Is there any, anybody can go to the fish store and get a guppy or a goldfish or a turtle. Can people go get an octopus? Octopuses are fairly rare on the um, the aquarist market. You have to be very advanced aquarist. They're difficult to keep. You have to have an aquarium that was specifically built for an octopus because not only are they difficult to keep alive, they're also difficult to keep in the tank. You want to make sure you're not in a position where they're just going to crawl out. They don't usually make it back in, contrary to some great fiction. Some species, particularly the very colorful ones, are are very dangerous to have in the house because if they bite you, you're not going to have a good outcome. So I think you have to be very, very knowledgeable if you want to keep an octopus recreationally. Try to do it in a way that's good for everybody. So you said they could recognize faces. Can you recognize them? If you put one back in the wild and then you go diving, can you recognize? Some of my colleagues and I have cameras that we put down in Australia to record octopuses underwater. And then we go away. We just watch them on video. We don't hang out there, but we swap the cameras out. We spend a lot of time trying to re-recognize individuals that walk off camera and then come back on camera. Of course, we're limited by the visibility in the water, by the resolution of the image, how far is the octopus from the camera, what's the light like, all of that. But then on top of that, can you find anything that's unique to that octopus and distinctive? So it depends on, like so much with octopuses, it depends on the species, but also on the circumstances. So yes, on a good day, I can recognize them again. The illustrations, if I might plug a very wonderful artist, the illustrations are absolutely gorgeous in this book. And they were done by someone that your listeners may be familiar with if they have seen PBS's Octopus Making Contact. The illustrations were done by my daughter, Laurel who is the girl who befriends Heidi in the video. Oh, that's so wonderful. And so she's the one who did the illustrations for the book, which is really nice. Very cool. And so she grew up with octopuses. She did. And it's interesting because I've worked with other artists to get drawings for scientific papers. The challenge that I've had with other artists is, even though I send them guide material, like I'm trying to illustrate these aspects of of the octopus, I still sometimes have to go back in and draw lines and I'm not the artist. I really do want someone with that artistic touch because they just haven't spent hundreds of hours watching octopuses. And and Laurel grew up with octopuses and she's been around him since before she could walk. I didn't have to coach her. She just was able to evoke the octopus because she has seen them over and over and over again. She kind of knew what she was drawing. It was a, a real delight to have that level of familiarity with an animal that really is unfamiliar to many artists. Because octopuses, when they show up in art, they're often very gorgeous. They have these properties that artists love, the flow and the coiling and the curves and all that. But the artist is not necessarily concerned with catching a true-to-life moment or posture or behavior of the octopus. And I wanted both aspects of that in the book. I wanted the true-to-life And I also wanted the artistry, the gestures and curves, but it had to be true to life. And there's not many artists who could nail that, but you have to have someone who's a good artist 
and you have to have someone who's grown up or spent a lot a lot, a lot of hours with octopuses. And many very artistic people have not, but Laurel meets both. It's the essence of the octopus. Yes, exactly. One other thing I didn't ask you about, then I'll let you go, is do all octopuses ink? There are octopuses that don't have ink sacs. I believe the deep sea ones, some of the very deep sea ones don't. The octopuses that most people are familiar with are these coastal species. And they hang out in shallow water where there's daylight. They have ink sacs. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they ink. And that's just for protection, right? Yeah, they use it when they want to distract. Uh, They feel like they're being pursued or threatened and they want to distract the pursuer. So they they will generally begin to flee and then ink and then change direction. So you're expecting them to go this way. And then there's this ink cloud hanging like they've stopped midwater and they've gone off in a totally different direction. Unless you're expecting it and sort of concentrating very hard at not looking at the ink, it's really hard not to fall for it every time. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much. The book is called Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of Octopuses by David Scheel. And you can get that wherever books are sold. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people who are making a difference. 